The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 welcome. I said four times because we have four people on the panel, but you know my shorthand code. This is Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future, episode two of a brand new series we debuted a couple of weeks ago. Today we're going to be talking about keys to a smart city, public-private partnerships. Think P times three. There you go. So what's the buzz on the street today? Well, I found a quote by Alexander Winter, a writer at Placemeter, P-L-A-C-E-M-E-T-E-R.com, back from uh, July 2016. Yeah, very recent. And he says, building a smart city, follow the money. Okay, let's just let that sink in for a minute. So here's a news flash from the American Society of Civil Engineers. You may know them as ASCE. Their 2013 report card, I know it sounds old, but they're getting ready for a new one. The 2013 report card graded America's infrastructure at a wah, 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 D plus. Really? Okay. And they estimated that $3.6 trillion of investment is needed by 2020 to improve the infrastructure. Let that sink in for a second. That's a big budget, a lot of money. No surprise, we're expecting this year, March 2017, the ASCE report card will show what we all know. The traditional sources of infrastructure financing for cities are just not cutting it. They're not adequate. More is needed. So how do smart city leaders find the resources to provide the needed and proactive, if they're that smart, municipal services to satisfy their residents and their visitors and their businesses and everybody who comes there? Well, we're going to be talking today with practitioners from public-private partnerships in the developed world and what's called the Global South, and we'll find out what that means in a minute. Let me tell you who's on the panel today, and then we'll get started. Gert Christian with City Innovate Foundation will be speaking with us. He will be joined by Andrew Mack, AM Global Consulting. Also on the panel, Jennifer Sanders from Dallas Innovation Alliance. They'll tell us about their organizations. And rounding out is the sponsor of this series, Mar- Marlon Zelkowitz, Global Director, SAP Future Cities and Internet of Things. So let's get started. Gert Christian has sent me a wonderful quote from John Wilmoth, the director of the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs Population Division. And here's a quote. Let this sink in for a second, and then Gert will explain it. Wilmoth says, Managing urban areas has become one of the most important development challenges of the 21st century. I want to add an amen to that. Gert Christen, City Innovate Foundation. How are you, Gert? Good morning. Uh, Very well. Thank you, Bonnie, for having me. 
We're delighted. So talk to me. T- tell me about the quote, and then I want you to tell us just a little bit about City Innovate Foundation. But are you a big fan of Wilmoth, and why is this so important? I know it's real. Talk to us. Yeah. Well, the, since a few years, actually more than 50% of the world's population live in cities. Uh, I think it tipped 2013-14, and uh, cities are also the fastest-growing um, system, systems in, in the world. And that's why I like this quote by John Wilmoth, because if we want to uh, improve our, our lives and lives for the majority of people, we've got to focus on, on cities. And that's why I chose, chose this, this quote. Thank you very much. Do you think that anybody who is, is working in a city, managing a city, tasked with building that infrastructure, Gert, do you think that this is any surprise to them? Or do you think they're just kind of puttering along saying, well, we don't get too many complaints. Well, it's not so bad. We're doing okay. Is this a, an, are we creating an awareness here right now of the fact of the challenge or are we creating awareness of how they can solve it? Any viewpoint on that? It's, uh, I, I truly think it, it's the latter. I talk with uh, city officials and city professionals ev- every day and they all realize uh, they, this fact that uh, <clears throat> they have to, to change and uh, smart city and all this technology and gadgets and sensors and self-driving cars, these are huge topics for them. What they, what they struggle with and what is really difficult to, um, to, to make cities smarter uh, so that they, are, they work better for the people who live there is that cities are public organizations and public organizations are different mm-hmm. from private ones. Uh, mostly it comes down to how decisions are made since cities don't spend their own money like a private person or a private business would. Uh, they, are be- they have to really um, argue their decisions much better. They're, they're, they're hugely more accountable than private companies because they spend tax money and they need to, whatever they do, it needs to work for everyone in, in the city. They can't just choose the, say, the super wealthy or the super young or the super old. They need to make this work for everyone. And that's why ultimately uh, smart cities and te- new technology is a huge opportunity, but it's not about the gadgets. It's how can cities create meaningful services that serve everyone using this technology? How can they make lives better for the residents in their cities? Thank you very much, Gert. It it is difficult. And there's also eyeballs looking at every penny they spend, every penny they propose to spend, which makes it more difficult. It's not like being in a family of four or six where you say, well, we're going to buy that smart TV. Well, no, we're not. We need a new car. No, we're going to buy it. And you have a little squabble over the dinner table. and You decide one's going to be the Valentine's gift to the family. One's going to be the Christmas or Hanukkah gift. And eventually everybody will be happy or there'll be a divorce. I don't want to go there. But anyway, it's very, very (laughs) different when you have... All these people. Thank you, Gerd. Pleasure to meet you. Tell me one, just 30 seconds, what is City Innovate Foundation? So our listeners know what you do. Mm-hmm. Happy to. City Innovate is a network of cities. It's a network of, of cities that have realized that they, they want to innovate, they want to change, they want to use technology to solve some of the problems that they face. And City Innovate uh, facilitates the the exchange and the cities helping each other 
And every now and then when there is uh, one, pro- one problem for which several cities say, oh, I want to do something about this, say improving transportation or improve, improving uh, equitable access to city services, then we take a group of cities together and we step them through a very methodical process to help them develop a blueprint of how could they go about uh, finding a solution to this particular problem and how can they build advocacy, how can they build the political will and how can they build up the, buy- the buy-in from the, the residents uh, to actually implement this solution. As one example, our largest customer currently is Miami-Dade County who are rolling out a uh, large program, $450 million, to improve uh, transportation and mobility in their county, how people and goods can get around from A to B. And uh, we, we've helped them in, uh, in the last months to develop exactly that plan. What services should they focus on, in which uh, supervised districts, in which uh, regions in the county, uh, what is lacking where, and how can they use technology to actually go and solve these. And once we have that for one city, in this case, uh, Miami-Dade County with 2.7 million inhabitants, then we're sharing that uh, playbook with as many other cities as possible. And that's where the network of cities of City Innovate comes to play. Thank you very much, Gert. Pleasure to have you on. And now let's introduce our second panelist. He is Andrew Mack at AM Global Consulting. And Andrew has sent us a very interesting quote from Wilma Rudolph. Wilma Glodian Rudolph, 1940 to 1994, was an American track and field sprinter. She competed in the 100 and 200 meter dash. She was acclaimed the fastest woman in the world in the 1960s and competed in the 1956 and 1960 Olympic Games. Here's the quote, very inspirational. Never underestimate the power of dreams and the influence of the human spirit. We are all the same in this notion. The potential for greatness lives within each of us. Andrew Mack, pleasure to welcome you. How are you today? I'm great, Bonnie. Thanks very much. We're delighted. Talk to me. Are you a big fan and follower of the fastest woman in the world? Well, she may still be. I don't know. Talk to me. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Uh, I'm, I'm a person who likes sports. I grew up uh, playing pretty much every sport you can imagine. And so uh, um, I came across this quote. I don't, I don't even remember where. But it really, really spoke to me. This is uh, Wilma was a woman who grew up with disability. She couldn't walk. She wear bra- braces on her on her uh, her legs when she was a little kid, and she was a you know African American and a woman in the fifties, and and achieved amazing things. And uh, I found the quote really, really very meaningful, really very inspirational. It is. Now, why don't you relate it to our topic of keys to a smart city, talking about public-private partnerships. Where is this greatness within us? How are we going to tap into that? Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about uh, some of the things that Gert was saying, and, you know, it's really true that cities are not primarily a collection of buildings. Cities are really a collection of people, right? And so when I was thinking about this in, in that context, I was thinking about it, to say, you know, one of the biggest things that we need is, is it's not a question of technology, it's not a question of tools, it's more a question of vision. And the vision for what the future can be like, and the vision for how we can get along and how we can move along together and how we can collaborate and, uh, and, 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 and build a kind of common future. That's what cities are really about for me. And I was thinking about some of the challenges that we face in cities 
and they're, you know, whether, whether they're challenges around infrastructure, challenges around getting from point A to point B, they're challenges around, around security, they're challenges around how we interact. And so a big piece of this is do we have a vision to see and can we communicate that vision to others in a way that gets them on board, gets them, if you will, running in the same direction. And uh, um, we've seen this all around the world. Uh, some examples that come to my mind from uh, from our our recent work. We've done a bunch of work uh, in Colombia of late, and uh, the city of Medellin is a perfect example of a city that has not only tremendous technology, but it's an incredible vibrancy about it uh, nowadays. When you go, you really feel it. There's a there's a sense of common commonality of mission. There's a sense that people are not not just that they have technology, but they that they're using it. But they're all, you know, they're all kind of going in the same direction, and I think that's tremendously powerful. You got to go and see it. It's a place that we oftentimes, in the United States, associate with, uh, the, you know, the, the the drug wars of the 1980s. The place is unbelievable. It's booming. It's got tremendous physical infrastructure, tremendous tremendous tech infrastructure. Just a really neat place. Very impressive. Very cool. And speaking of impressive, I like the way you, you taught, use the word running in a sentence very aptly just now, Andrew. Uh, Andrew, why don't you spend just one minute telling us what AM Global Consulting does? Sure. AM Global is an 11-year-old, sort of like 11 and a half year old consulting firm based here in Washington, D.C., and we work, with, uh, we work primarily with the Global South. We work with companies, nonprofits, donor agencies that want to do more and better work in the Global South. It, uh, we focus on, on new market entry for, for companies that have products that they'd like to get into and understand. And we're very much of a social company. Our goal is to look for the win-win in all of this. So doing a lot of work with groups that are trying to find, uh, to try, trying to find the, the, the positive benefits of the things that they're doing. We do a lot of corporate social responsibility and community engagement projects as part of what we do. And we build a sense of the social benefit of the products people are bringing into the Global South, into all of the projects that we do and all of the work we do. Um, we've worked with all manner of com- companies uh, from, from you know, Chevron and Oracle and Motorola uh, at the very high level all the way down to startups and with nonprofits, large and small. And uh, we specialize in work with the Global South, especially Latin America and Africa. Um, a big piece of our goal is to try to to make sure that the that the, that the, that the partnerships and that the economic growth aspects of all of all of what what people do come out uh, as you as you as you probably know that oftentimes what is best for Kenya is also best for the private sector working in Kenya and we think that there's a uh, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there and oftentimes a lot of money left on the table for both sides so whether you're talking when you're talking about a public private partnership you're talking about uh, government that needs things that the private sector is bringing and private sector that, frankly, needs good government services. And we think that there's a lot of opportunity for real win-wins. In fact, we were just yesterday with a client at the World Bank talking about a public-private partnership that we're trying to help them build uh, with, with one of our clients around uh, emergency preparedness and fire safety. Thank you very much, Andrew. Pleasure to have you on. Very interesting background, and your heart is certainly in the right places all around the world. Thank you. And now let me introduce Jennifer Sanders with the Dallas Innovation Alliance. She has sent us a fabulous quote from the movie As Good As It Gets, 1997. In this quote, character Simon Bishop, played by the very, very wonderful Greg Kinnear, is talking to Carol Connolly, played by the equally wonderful Helen Hunt. Let me just set up the movie if anybody doesn't remember. 
remember it. As Good As It Gets, 1997 American romantic comedy film directed by James L. Brooks, starring Jack Nicholson as a misanthropic, no surprise there, misanthropic, racist, obsessive, compulsive novelist, Helen Hunt as a single mother with a chronically ill son, and Greg Kinnear as a gay artist. Interestingly enough, Nicholson and Hunt won the Academy Award for, respectively, Best Actor and Best Actress, making As Good As It Gets the most recent film to win both of the lead acting awards and the first since 1991 Silence of the Lambs. That's interesting. And the movie is ranked 140th on Empire Magazine's The 500 Greatest Movies of All Time. All right, Bonnie, get to it already. Here's the quote Jennifer Sanders has selected. And this is Greg's character saying to Helen's character, I'm tired of my own complaints. I need to get some new thoughts. Jennifer Sanders, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? Oh, I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I've got to say this this conversation has already been so exciting for me to be a part of. Thank you. Oh, we're glad. I think you're going to keep that energy going. So talk to me. Are you a big fan of Nicholson and Hunt and Kinnear and as good as it gets? How did you pick this quote? Very interesting. You know, it's it's a little bit tongue in cheek and I wanted to to go a little a little left field on the quote, but I think um you know, the the movie is wonderful, but this line has always stuck out to me. And I think, you know, what it what it represents to me as it relates to smart cities is, you know, cities all over the world are facing a lot of the same challenges and I think, you know, have been, you know, to some extent really running into to brick walls on how we solve this. And it really speaks to the need for cities to innovate, not just in their thinking, but in overall structures and processes and how we approach these problems. And I think smart cities really offers the opportunity to really take that different look and different perspective and certainly bringing together all the different stakeholders through public-private partnerships, you can really get that best minds approach and those varied perspectives that, that drive that innovation. Very interesting. So do you think cities are saying, oh, we're so tired of finding out we got a D-plus on the report card. When is it going to get better? What's, what's going to happen? How are we going to get smart about being a smart city? Do you think they're saying this or do you think they're just saying, damn, we got to get moving and not realizing they're complaining about the same thing? Maybe I'm going in circles here, but what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the demand is also being driven by citizens. I mean, I know in Dallas, you know, every, everyone's, you know, you hear the same. I think if you, if you, if you um, survey, you know, any, any city, you know, in the, in the country, certainly, two of the top three concerns are going to be pretty consistent. One is going to be traffic or transportation. The other is going to be public safety. And in Dallas, you know, the, the budget, you know, we talk about financials. You know, one of the challenges is always, you know, how do you balance filling the potholes with taking a really forward-looking, you know, longer-term view on how we do this smartly and, and really prepare for the long haul. So I think a lot of it is being driven by, by citizen frustration and, and that mm-hmm. – um, that momentum is, is driving everything. I know that, and it really speaks to what, what the other panelists have already said about, you know, we have to think about the ultimate end user. And I think cities, you know, often can get bogged down in the process and in executing a specific program without really thinking about ultimately the goal of everything that we do is to improve the quality of life of, of, of our residents. And so um, I, I think that's what's driving a lot of this. Certainly should be. We we can only hope. I, I had relatives from out of town visiting. My mom is turning 100 tomorrow, by the way, and my family came in. Mm-hmm. One set of family live in Jacksonville, another one in Raleigh-Durham. And they came in and they said, Mom, are the roads really this bad? I won't name where I live. Some people know on the North Shore. What is your government doing? What is the town doing? What is the village doing? What are the potholes? Why are the lights not coordinated, the traffic lights? Why are people beeping and honking and cutting? 
cutting each other off. Where is it? And I'm saying, well, this is my village, my city, my town, my street, my community, my state. I don't know. I don't know. So when you say for the good of everybody, as Gert said it and Andrew said it, and I know Marlon will echo that, we sometimes wonder, when are we going to get smart about being a city for the people and then become a smart city? I'm leading up to that, obviously. Jennifer, please tell us just a little bit about Dallas Innovation Alliance. What do you do? No, absolutely. So the Dallas Innovation Alliance, we're a nonprofit public-private partnership that was formed in September 2015. We were actually lucky enough to be included in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy's Smart Cities announcement, where they also announced you know, $160 million plus in federal funding to mm. drive smart cities around the country. But the, the approach that we're taking, you know, our mission is to help design and execute a multi-phase smart cities plan for Dallas. And conversations obviously started with the city first, you know, and they were very supportive of finding a way to be forward-looking. And together, we really felt like this PPP model was, was a great way to start and we could move quickly and take that best minds approach and bring everyone to the table early, which obviously includes you know, our transit authority includes the Chamber of Commerce, um, includes academic institutions, and of course, includes, you know, corporations that have done this already all over the world and can really bring, bring that best practices approach to our planning. Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you on. And now let's turn to the lady who put this wonderful panel together, who is the sponsor of our series, Marlon Zelkowitz at SAP. And Marlon has sent us a quote from none other than Sir Isaac Newton, a little farther back in history, 1642 to 1727. He was a brilliant scientist and mathematician. He refined the laws of planetary motion. He wrote the most influential book on physics and designed a reflecting telescope. Would you believe he was still insecure? He had low self-esteem. I don't even know if they were talking about that in the late 1600s. Uh, he said the most famous story told about him never actually happened. I have to dig into that. I didn't pull that up in my notes. Here is the quote, Marlon. This is so timely. We won't make it political, but it will resonate with everybody listening right now because we are live. And what is the date today? January 31st, 2017. I rest my case. Here's the quote. We build too many walls and not enough bridges. Oh my. Marlon Zelkowitz, welcome to the second episode of your new series. How have you been? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for helping us put this show together. I'm delighted to say this quote to me spoke on so many levels. So many cities in the world, whether in the global south, in Europe, in the Americas, are built around rivers, on them, near them, by them. And bridges are really important. They link the people and they link, they enable commerce to flow in between the different sides of the rivers. So bridges are so important for communities, for society, for the economy, for helping to improve people's lives. So when I saw that part, I thought, wow. And then I thought, ooh, look at all this amount of money that we need to invest just in, in the United States alone to improve our, our infrastructure, and that includes bridges. And, and as we know, a few years ago, we had a really sad incident where a bridge actually fell apart while cars were driving over it. And I thought, what if we could improve that? What if we could have sensors in the bridges and prevent those kinds of accidents? And and so bridges are really important and keeping them safe are important to keep citizens safer and improve people's lives. On the other side, I don't want to comment on walls because I think enough has been said in recent uh, days. So we'll just leave that aside. 
Thank you very, very much. That's interesting about about SMART, about the safety issue and the bridge knowing when it's not safe and warning people before they get there. Wouldn't it be a beautiful world? Is that already being done with, with Internet of Things and AI technology already, Marlon? Is there any place that has that kind of preventive analytics, predictive analytics for bridges? Well, I think we're starting to see some of those projects being, you know, being tried out, and I don't think they've scaled yet. And and there's a lot of a lot of pieces that need to happen and be put in place for them to be, um, as, as we pointed out, for them to be viable. So there's been some some testing, uh, putting sensors in bridges to be able to detect when there's vibrations and when those vibrations could be dangerous. But you also need to have in place your network to connect that and to be able to analyze that data and consume that and have the people who know how to address that working in the transportation department or whatever the um, or the organization that runs the toll bridge who can maintain it. So I think we're on that path to move in that direction. I think it's a wonderful vision and uh, like putting those kinds of ideas out there because I think it's just so important for all of us. Absolutely. And, and while you were speaking, Marlon, you know what I did. I Googled smart bridges with safety sensors, question mark, and came up with some interesting articles that date back to 2009 in Scientific American. Engineers are deploying sensors to monitor the condition of some of the bridges, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's one from the IEEE, the Engineer Spectrum, Smart Bridges 2013. Here's another one in cl.cam.ac.uk, uh, Smart Bridges mm-hmm. with Fiber Optic Sensor. So if anybody's curious, there's one in the Wall Street Journal back in 2009. They were still saying, mm-hmm. when is this going to happen? Interesting. Very, very interesting. If I might add one more point. Um, yeah. Typically, those kinds of projects happen in the course of new construction or repair work, so they don't necessarily happen straight from the get-go. And so there is a significant, and this is the topic of today's talk, there's a significant investment that's often required to take an existing bridge and to make it um, smart like that. For a new bridge, I think it's much easier for new construction. You can plan that into your program. Very well put. Thank you very much, Marlon. So after the fact, after the accident, after the OMG, how smart can we make the bridge? Very interesting. Great start to our conversation, and we're going to have a little more conversation right now. We call it our What's in Your Cup Today icebreaker so we can get to know our panelists a little bit up close and personal. So I'm going to give you each, oh, let's take about 30 seconds and tell me if there's something really interesting in your cup that you're drinking during the show or what's your favorite drink that makes you smile. Gert Christian, and where are you calling mm-hmm. from, please? Okay, I'm I'm calling from uh, my home city, San Francisco, California, and and my my cup has to be a a an espresso uh, an espresso drink. Can't leave the house in the morning without one or two of those. And uh, made sure that at the office we have the same machine so that you know my cup of coffee can keep me going all day long. There you go. What's your, I have an espresso also. Mine is red. It matches the red quartz countertops in my kitchen. I oh, love so, red. I'm, so is I'm ours. a redhead too. Oh, really? Well, I knew yeah, I liked the, you, Gert. The red, one, yeah, the red ones make the best coffee, no doubt. And I agree. And I'm a redhead, so I agree with that on all levels. Now tell me, what flavor? Are you drinking the, the little espresso, the little pot or the big one? And what's the flavor of your coffee? We'd love to know. Uh, okay, so my, my favorite is the, the the purple capsule. I think it's called Ar- Arpeggio or something like that. And and I'm a cappuccino fan, so I got the milk ah. frother and uh, uh, 
early in the morning. It's so it's convenient because it's one button and then you know the red the red machine mixes it exactly uh, exactly right. So I don't have to think much before my first coffee in the morning. Absolutely. It is the arpeggio in the original line, uh, one of the Nespresso Grand Cru's interesting side, mark, or side remark here. I did another show an hour ago. It was our show on digital transformation of supply chain. And one of our panelists, Gert, had a very current Nespresso machine that was smart. And he could check on his cell phone through an app to see what the water level was and whether the coffee maker was going to have the, and when it was ready for more capsules to be ordered. He could order from Nespresso. So from his phone, based on the inventory of what he had in the house. So I, I'm not quite ready for that. I don't know about you. But anyway, smart Nespresso's. There you go. How smart does your coffee maker have to be? Unbelievable. How about the coffee maker that knows what coffee you need right now? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, I change from day to day, so it would hard for, be hard for it to keep up with me. Thank you, Gert. Andrew <laughs> Mack, where are you calling from and what makes you happy in your cup, Andrew? I'm calling from Washington, D.C., uh, the DuPont Circle area, and what makes me happy in my cup, uh, I think that the, the coffee in the morning that I'm, I'm, I'm most longing to uh, get getting to these days is uh, Sumatra Aceh. The, the, they, they make a really nice one, the Keurig Pods, and in the evenings, gotta go with the whiskey. Uh, um, more 17, I, co- I collect Scotch whiskey, so it's one of the things I really enjoy late in the day. Mm, what's your favorite Scotch whiskey? Um, it depends on the day, depends on the time of year. Uh, this time of year, I, I, I love Balmore, Balmore 17. I really like Balvini as well, two of the, two of the different kinds that I, that, I, that I collect a lot of. But I have about 90 single malts at the house. Oh, my goodness. Is that a whole separate uh, part of the infrastructure? It's a whole separate room. It, 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 is, it is an entire cabinet of infrastructure. Uh, taller than I am, wider than I am, and deeper than I am, and uh, uh, yeah, it's great fun. Anytime you want to come by and do a little scotch tasting, you're more than welcome uh, in, in the D.C. area. Very interesting. I just interviewed on my personal radio show last night a woman who, with her husband, bought a farm on the big island in Hawaii. They didn't know what to do with it, so they decided to grow vanilla. And they are now at HawaiianVanilla.com is their website. Her name is Tracy and her husband is Jim Redicop. You can figure that out. It's, it's not the way it sounds. But she is going to start a distillery where she's going to make vanilla flavored whiskeys. I'm just going to leave that one alone, but they, they exist. So I don't know if you're into vanilla flavored whiskey, but, uh, you can check her website in a couple of years and see if they're doing it. So there. I'm a purist with the scotch, I gotta say. There you go. Jennifer Sanders, Dallas Innovation Alliance. Where are you calling from, Jennifer, and what makes you happy to drink? Well, as you can imagine, I'm calling from Dallas, Texas, and mm-hmm. your friend is a, or your guest is a woman after my own heart. I can't live without my coffee and vanilla creamer every morning. <laughs> I'll tell her that. What flavor I'll coffee do, do you add the vanilla creamer to? Mm-hmm. What, what's your favorite coffee? I, I, brew, I brew espresso. Mm, okay. I like it but strong my, as, yep, that's the way to go. But Powerful. I was going to say, my, 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 my favorite, my, what makes me happy in my cup, though, is I often have yerba mate tea, which reminds me of a trip I took to Patagonia in Argentina a few years ago, which I think is one of the most naturally beautiful spots in the entire world. So it just takes me back. Lovely, lovely. Okay. And Marlon, where are you calling from? You in D.C. today, and what's in your cup? I'm in D.C. today. I have tea in my cup. Uh, today, white tea with orange, but I'd much rather have a vanilla tea in my cup. I started drinking that when I was working in Poland, and I, I love it. It's my favorite, so we'll continue on that wonderful vanilla theme. 
There you go. Vanilla rocks. And I'm not drinking vanilla today. I'm drinking, as Marlon knows, a cool, clear cup of cool, clear water in a mug I can see into when I have a yellow straw. Why? Because it's been snowing like a banshee here in New York, but it stopped. And the looks like there's no accumulation of snow, which is great because my little sports car does not have traction in the snow. And I have places to go. So I'm very, very happy. So we're still hoping for a peak of sunshine through the clouds, a little gray and gloomy here. Marlon, was it snowing in D.C. this morning? No, not at all. Oh my it's goodness! It was like here. a, it was like a whiteout here. You couldn't see for a little while, and now, thank goodness, it's just a little trickle. So I appreciate that. We're talking today with Gert Christian and Andrew Mack, Jennifer Sanders, Marlon Zelko. It's great topic. Keys to a smart city. I should say keys to your smart city wherever you are around the world. Public-private partnerships. P3. We're going to find out so much more when we come back. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Michael out. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly city and local government leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as increased citizen and business demands for digital services, a growing variety of digital devices and sensors causing a data deluge, and increased volatility in politics and environment, coupled with constrained resources. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Game-changing smart cities of the future is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. You're listening to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future. Indeed, here we are speaking with Gert Christen of City Innovate Foundation, Andrew Mack at AM Global Consulting, Jennifer Sanders at Dallas Innovation Alliance, and Marlon Zalkowitz at Internet of Things and Global Director of SAP Future Cities at SAP. We're talking today about the keys to a smart city, public-private partnerships. We're going to kick off the roundtable. We're going to go real fast around the table, cover a lot of topics. Gert told me the following in his notes before the show, and this is where we will start. He says, smart Smart cities are not about gadgets, they're not about sensors, and they're not about self-driving cars. Go ahead, Gert, why don't you expand that? Uh, yeah, yes, they are not, but what all these, uh, well, these gadgets, sensors, self-driving cars represent, it's, a, it's an avalanche of, uh, of new technologies uh, from, from private industry that kind of arrives at the, at the doors of City Hall, and there's uh, many companies that say, oh, t- take my gadget or take my sensor or take my self-driving car and it's going to solve you a lot of, of problems in your city. But it doesn't work that, that way because cities uh, need, to, need to bundle these into proper services and cities always need a, a policy, a regulative a reason to do, to do things. And 
But the, what this new technology does, it's really a disruption to the ways how cities have operated. And I also believe that uh, the, as, you know, new young city administrators uh, and professionals come in, they're also ready to go to go new ways because they're also kind of tired that uh, every city has a kind of functions as a silo and tries to reinvent the wheel over over and over and, and that's what that city innovate what we uh, help cities to do to go new ways uh, using the latest technologies but in a way that that makes sense so to give one example autonomous vehicles um, they have big potential for cities as uh, uh, autonomous shuttles that take people around from the end of the, the metro line to the to to where they live and it, and it just runs when there are enough people and it takes the it can take the route uh, to exactly where the people need to go to so that would be very very beneficial but it's not done with just putting a vehicle there it has to work with the back end, the, the, the systems that are in the city already, it has to work with the existing transit system and the ticketing systems, for instance, that are used, used there. So it had done right. All these new technologies uh, can have a, a really big positive impact. But getting it right is something that uh, for, for cities is a new way uh, that they need to go. And uh, what we're proposing is uh, why don't cities work to work together so that they can exchange notes and uh, share piloting and so on. And public-private partnerships are an excellent vehicle to get this done. Thank you very much. Let's go on to Andrew Mack. Andrew, please add to this topic. Thoughts on what Gertz just shared? Uh, sure. I think, I think what Gertz, Gertz says is spot on. I mean, if you look around the world... We, we tend to see cities as autonomous units, and in fact, they have a lot in common. Uh, I can remember being stuck in really awful traffic jams in Jakarta and Mexico City and Nairobi, and they're remarkably similar, right? And so anything that we can learn and any technology that we can, we, we, we can employ that's going to deal with things like traffic management in a smart way is, is, is going to affect people not just in the one city, but all, all around. Um, I also think about how... A lot of this is based on trust. You know, we're moving into uh, kind of a next economy, one defined by networks and trust, and a lot of smart cities is around data and how we use data, and it, it requires that people trust their government, trust their ability to have the data used in an appropriate way, and uh, I think that that's another piece of it, is making the... the yeah, when Gert says it's not just about the devices, I couldn't agree more but we need to make sure that we get those devices into people's hands so they use them and so that they trust them. I think that that's going to be a big piece of it. Otherwise, we may find that uh, down the road we've invented the perfect mousetrap that people aren't comfortable using because of, 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 of the way that, it, that, they, that they feel that they've lost control of their data. Interesting. Jennifer Sanders, please join us. Thoughts? Well, gosh, just, just to piggyback on, on what Andrew said, I mean, I think it's so important to clearly communicate the, the uses and really the benefit to citizens of sharing that data and doing that up front. Because if you think about in the, in the corporate setting, you know, every time I click that terms of use button, right, on whether it's iTunes or AT&T in my case, you know, I know that the value of what I'm getting is worth, you know, turning over whatever data is, is being utilized and it's being used to pr- make my experience stronger. And I think with cities, you know, that's, that's exactly the same thing. So as, as cities undertake 
these big data programs and these smart initiatives, I think being extraordinarily clear up front, and I think that public education has to come prior to the, to the execution and the launch of these initiatives, then I think citizens feel you know, exponentially more comfortable with it and know what the ultimate outcome is, whether that is, you know, improving public transit or other, you know, other services that the city provides. And, um, and then just to touch on what Gert said around, you know, city sharing information, I have to say that, you know, we're still a relatively young organization, but I have been so heartened with the, the outpouring of, of information coming from other cities and looking to collaborate and, and really sharing not just the successes, but being very, very honest about what they would do differently. Because I think every city is, is you, know, learning to fly, you know, learning to fly the plane while it's in the air regarding this. It's really uncharted territory. And every city wants the next city to be able to move more quickly. I want the cities that come after Dallas to have all the information they need to execute as quickly as possible because we all benefit from that. Thank you. Marlon, join us. Thoughts? Yes, I think we've had some really great observations from our esteemed panelists, and I thank them. Everything from um, integrating information across silos is critical to success. Uh, We need to focus on the outcomes, the benefits to the citizens when we're putting together these projects. We are definitely most absolutely in uncharted territories. And one thing Jennifer just said that I'd really like to highlight Cities do collaborate. They are willing to share their experiences with other public sector organizations, whether it's local government, regional government, state government. You even see in the United States, the state of Illinois, working with the smaller municipalities as well as the counties in the state on these smarter projects. I think that's really an interesting feature of government and public sector. You certainly don't see that happening so much in uh, the private sector with, for example, the auto manufacturers. You don't see BMW and VW and Ford and, and GM all collaborating together to build the next smart car, for example. So I think that's a unique feature of public sector, and it benefits us all. Thank you very much. Good first topic. I'm going to move quickly to some notes from Andrew Mack. Andrew, I'm just going to pull up a couple of headlines here that all go to our topic, and then you can expand for about two minutes, and then we'll move around the table. You say a couple things. Number one, partnerships are not the next best thing. They are the now thing, and they are everywhere. Then you say real partnerships need to be mutually beneficial for firms and for the individuals that drive them. And you have two interesting mirror images of each other. You say partnership is the oldest technology and technology is all about partnerships. I love the way this all wraps up, I think, in one nice package. So, Andrew, talk specifically. Partnerships aren't the next best thing. Uh, PPP, that's our topic. Go ahead. Sure. Um, I mean, if you think about it, we have tremendous opportunities because we have tre- tremendous common common needs, right? Everybody in, the, in, 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 a, in a city context, whether they be in the private sector, whether they're studying at, at the university, whether they are working in government, they all have a lot of the same needs. They, they need good water. They need, good tra- you know, they need to be able to, to, to move easily from, from, from one place to another. And we didn't even talk about the bridge that I thought we might, we might talk about earlier, which is all around technology and Internet and telecommunications and things like that, because that's, in some ways, the infrastructure bridge that is replacing all other bridges, right? Um, I, I, my, my, sense is, my sense is that, is that, the, that the wave of the past, which was, was much more autonomous, my company competing against your company, my my, my government competing with one city for talent against another city is really, you know, we're going to really see a, a change in the way that we're organized, that we know we need to collaborate much more closely. 
the the partnerships must be mutually beneficial in two ways. Number one is we need if I'm going to ask for a corporate to partner with me as government, I need to make sure it's worth their while, and I need to be able to talk their language. There's a there's an old saying we use a lot at the firm from from uh, from Liberia and West Africa to speak to the fish go underwater. You really need to have mastered the language of your partner so that you can talk about the, you can talk about the same things using the same language. Oftentimes, governments tend to think of things in very long term, uh, in, in very 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 large chunks of time. NGOs the same way. Whereas the private sector is looking to say, what can I tell my board that I'm doing in the next three months? So that's an important piece of it. And you talk about the idea that partnerships are really they're they're about organizations, but they're also about individuals. I, as an individual, need to, need, to, need to know that I'm going to get promoted for the work that I'm doing. And so we want to organize our partnerships in ways that show not just that there is progress, but that, 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 that give the people who are doing the hard work of the partnering, give them visibility. Now, you talked about this. Uh, I, I, I mentioned that partnership is the oldest technology, and about technology is all about partnerships. And if you mm-hmm. think about it, society is a partnership. So, I mean, coming together to try to solve our collective problems, otherwise we'd all live by ourselves. Uh, it, it predates the computer, it predates the factory, it predates language in a lot of ways. On the other hand, all of the technologies that we're talking about, the next generation things, when we talk about big data or blockchain or IoT, this is all about partnering. Because really what it comes down to is we're all partnering around a platform. We're agreeing to let each other use common data. And so um, I see this as, I, I see this as, as, as the underpinning of our, you know, of our next, next economic model, certainly for cities, where almost by definition everybody's coming together, right? So they are they're partnering in a common space, whether they like it or not. Thank you, Andrew. I want to get Jennifer Sanders in on this. Jennifer, thoughts on what Andrew just shared? Well, first of all, completely, completely uh, ditto on what on what Andrew shared. And, and just to take a little bit more of a of a micro, you know, example from Dallas's case, you know, one of the reasons that we structured this organization, you know, as a freestanding nonprofit and in this PPP model was because we knew we could move far more quickly than the city could move should this kind of department have been formed internally. And, you know, one of the mm-hmm. one of the pieces of feedback that I've gotten from some leadership at the city is, you know, what what DIA has been able to accomplish in six months would have taken three years, you know, if we'd been trying to make this work within the city. And so the goal for us is not to, you know, consistently, and we're certainly, the city is hiring a, an innovation specialist to work with departments, but we just want to be able to give those quick wins, you know, to Andrew's point, it's so important for that kind of, you know, immediate gratification and encouragement that kind of moves toward these larger initiatives. And so, you know, one of the, the pieces of this first phase is, is absolutely to get those quick wins and provide results so that informed decisions can be made as the city looks to scale. And about the partnership within city departments, I think that's such a big piece of getting cities to think more strategically. I mean, so, you know, the DIA, we're working, you know, at last count with 20 different city departments, you know, collaboratively and getting them to really think through, you know, as the, as the traffic signal system is looking to operate on a new network, what else, what other use cases can be accomplished through that network? Can we also run our water meters on this? Can we run the streetlights? You know, and for showing these multiple use cases, that also from a cost standpoint allows those costs to be shared between departments instead of just looking, say, for the CIS department to, you know, to carry the full burden of the network, but really if it's, if it's benefiting public safety or if it's benefiting you know, energy usage, that's, some, that's another way that they can be thinking collaboratively even within the city. Thank you, Jennifer. Marlon, thoughts, please? 
I, uh, I think we're really right on spot on with all these points. Um, partnerships do need to benefit everybody, not just the citizens, not just the partners in the partnership. And I think um, we're doing a, both as we see in Dallas and as we see with the CD Innovate Forum, these organizations are doing a fabulous job trying to jumpstart, identify the ways that partners can work together, codify those best practices, and also figure out ways that they're going to be able to, to scale these projects and procure these things. It's a first time. You've never done it before. You don't know how to do it. You're not even sure what, you know, how you would buy it and how to put together the program. So try it out first, scale it, and then work for it. And then the partners will also learn from that process and then be able to continue to support you moving on. And I love the idea of, of multi-use networks and leveraging that infrastructure um, and perhaps a, another form of a bridge, as Andy mentioned before, or Andrew mentioned before. Thank you. Thank you, Marlon. Okay, and let me circle around to Gert Kristen. Gert, comments? Yeah, I love uh, everything uh, people say. And, you know, I want to come back to something Jennifer said. She talked about uh, use cases. And I, and I think if we think about where public-private partnerships can, can, can help cities figure this out, it is exactly in, in, in this area. And, and this is what I mean. Uh, traditionally, the old way for uh, public organizations to buy uh, a product, uh, their, their process of public procurement always was that you would pilot, you would invite some companies to pilot or you would buy some equipment and you would pilot this. And the purpose of the pilot was then to, to write a specification so that you can put out a bid uh, for companies to respond exactly to this specification of this widget uh, that the city wanted to buy. And, and public-private <clears throat> partnerships and uh, perhaps working in a network, public-private network, several cities together at, uh, at some universities, um, entrepreneur networks to, to the mix uh, the way that um, the new way to do it is what Jennifer said, create use cases to, for cities not to just specify we want to buy this pro- exactly this product and if you're uh, you know half an inch off with your product then we can't buy yours. Uh, but uh, specify what problem should be solved and then let the private sector, the academic sector respond and propose diff- different solutions. And I think... Uh, that way, it's uh, it, 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 it's better for for cities and uh, and it allows new technology really really to shine and address perhaps in ways that uh, th- that we hadn't thought of before how to solve a particular problem, and that is much more uh, has been much more potential also to to be reused and uh, and results and trials and pilots to be shared by, by several cities, several companies, you know, which is then this network effect um, that, uh, that, Marlin, that Marlin mentioned. And, and I, I find this to, to really be a key point to, to, to turn things around and try new ways to innovate so that we do get to smart cities. Thank you very much. We are actually at the part of the show called the Crystal Ball Predictions Round. But I want to, before that, I think we'll keep our predictions to about two sentences each. Marlon, I want to cover one topic from Jennifer and one from you quickly. I can give you each about 60 seconds. Jennifer, in your list, you say cities are overwhelmed with the concept of boiling the ocean regarding new technologies and departmental education. Taking a phased approach is critical. Can you just tell us 60 seconds what's so important about this, Jennifer Sanders, please? 
Oh, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, when we think about particularly in cities like Dallas that cover just such a vast and varied geographic area and demographic area, the thought of trying to find a one-size-fits-all solution and, and again, scaling it, you know, and financial is obviously a major piece of that. It's overwhelming. You don't, you don't know how to make the right decision. You don't know, you know, writing an RFP for something brand new is, is daunting and you don't really know if you're asking for the, asking the right questions or asking the right things. So, I mean, taking this phased approach in our pilot area is a, is a very compressed zone in a downtown district. And by being able to extrapolate those lessons learned, again, it just provides for a much more informed you know, city, you know, city entity and certainly for city council provides the, the results and the justification to, to make those major investments. So I'll keep it short and leave it there. Thank you very much. And Marlon, I want to cover one. You have a whole list of the advantages of P3s, but I'm just going to read the first one. And Marlon, if you just expand on it 60 seconds, and then we'll give everybody a really, yeah, we're almost out of time here. You say PPPs combine the skills and resources of both the public and private sectors through sharing of risks and responsibilities, but they need a careful analysis of the long-term development objectives and risk allocation is essential. Where does this risk fall? Equally on both shoulders, Marlon? or does it go to either side? It should fall equally on both shoulders. Um, it, unfortunately, that is not usually, that is not always the case. In a well-structured public-private partnership, there are rewards for the partners, um, the private sector partners, for the citizens, and for the government. An example would be a well-functioning toll road that is maintained properly and that continues to have fair, affordable prices um, that maybe with some congestion charging, but, you know, something that's fair to all. When it doesn't work, um, you might see a company or an organization that is unable to, to meet its obligations because the, the deal wasn't properly constructed, and your tolls rise from $1.90 to $5, and that's a real example in Indiana. I think it is in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, too. We'll leave Easy Pass off to the side. Thank you very much. Great conversation. Marlon, I think you've got the makings for a part two out of this one. We had so much more to talk about. I'm going to give you each two sentences for your predictions. Let's look at 2020, if you don't mind. Gert, Kristen, what do you see coming down the pike, literally and figuratively, in terms of public-private partnerships that you would predict is coming? Let's target 2020. Gert, Kristen, two sentences, predictions, go. Okay. Uh, my prediction is that by 2020, um, c- cities will have figured out uh, how that vast amount of data can be made available to their citizens so that citizens can get uh, better involved too with uh, telling their city how, how they should innovate and what new services they want. Thank you very much. And now let's go to Andrew Mack at AM Global Consulting. Mr. Mack, talk to me. Predictions? Uh, yeah, yes, I, I mean, my, my sense is that we're going to be a little bit inundated with new technology over the next few years. And as a result, it's going to be more and more important for us to build trust between government and the citizens and between government and, and private sector. So teaching about partnership is going to be a big focus. I also think we may see a little bit more outcomes-based contracting, which is to say that people who can solve the problem make more money if they deliver on their promises. And I want to uh, just say uh, happy birthday to your, to your mom. Oh, thank you. 100 yeah. is, is a big deal. You kind of know, <laughs> you think. Deal. It's a mouthful <laughs> down to her. And, uh, uh, yeah, may, 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 may she enjoy the, the, as many more years as she has. Oh, you're sweet. Thank you so much and very thoughtful. Jennifer Sanders, two sentences, predictions. Go ahead. 
Well, I, I think that cities that undertake an aggressive approach, particularly with PPPs today, will reap enormous economic benefits by 2020, and not just economic, but I think the social benefits, you know, can't be underestimated, particularly as it relates to um, more more consistent and ease of communication with citizens, as well as that service delivery component, particularly in underserved communities. Thank you very much. Yeah, we didn't talk about underserved communities, another topic. Marlon Zalkowitz, talk to me. Predictions, I can give you two sentences. Tops, go ahead. Some cities are going to find a way for them yeah, to go find a way to monetize data, and they're going to be able to make money from that for the city itself. Good. Okay, I like that. Marlon, quickly, what's coming up next in, in four weeks from today on your next episode? A quick preview? Got one? Well, I'm hoping it's going to be part two of public-private partnerships because we've barely touched the tip of the iceberg. Now, whether I we can do that live or need to record because it's the day after a holiday in the United States, I do not know. I think this panel will be able to hit the ground running, whether it's the day before, after, or during a holiday. I think they're all ready to go. Thank you, Gert Kristen. Thank you, Andrew Mack. Thank you, Jennifer Sanders. Marlon, wonderful. Michael and the Business Channel team, thanks for getting us on the air and keeping us there. And it's snowing here again. Stop, stop. Here's my call to action for all of you. Fasten your seatbelt. By the way, we have Adopt a Highway here, and I think that's a little bit of a public and private uh, on Long Island. You see signs, Adopt a Highway in certain dress shop, adopted this mile of the Long Island Express. It's still the world's biggest parking lot. I rest my case. Fasten your seatbelt, whatever you're driving. What are you waiting for? Go out, even in the snow, and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Talk to you tomorrow on Coffee Break with Game Changers, 11 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Business Channel. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.